Well, guys, I'm, I'm going to start off with a pop quiz because I gave you homework, right? Welcome. For those that were here last week, uh, or those that listened on the podcast, your homework, remember, was to read Ephesians 6 every day this week, all right? How many of you did it at least a few days this week? Hey, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Did you notice a difference? Okay, Catherine says yes. Anybody else? Difference? Franklin, yeah? Bob, yeah? Of course, we, we talked about it as staff as well. It, it, it makes a difference when we're aware of the spiritual battle that's been waged around us. And of course, we talked about that last week in Daniel chapter 10 because Daniel has his last vision. Uh, it comes because he's praying to God. And, uh, and basically, Gabriel shows up and says, Hey, Daniel, listen, I want to talk to you about what you've been praying about. Uh, and, 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 and God actually sent this answer from, from the very first day you began to pray and fast. But I was held up in a spiritual battle uh, that's going on in Persia. And, and so we just kind of camped out on that thought that there's this unseen battle, what that means, that God fights for us, all those kind of things. Well, this morning, um, we're going to hear about the actual vision itself, and it's, it's Daniel's final vision. We're going to talk about all that that means, what we can glean from it, and, uh, and we're going to pray that in all of that, that God might be glorified. So um, join me in a word of prayer, if you don't mind. Father, um, we want to thank you for your word. And we want to recognize that it's good, and not only is it good, but that it's alive. It's active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. It's the only thing that can penetrate the deepest, darkest, hardest parts of our heart. God, we also recognize that it's useful. It's useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. Um, And God, we just declare that we need all that today. And so, Holy Spirit, we're going to ask that you would come and take your place in our church. You are the teacher of this church. And we pray that you would lift up and exalt Jesus, that you would teach us his ways from the inside out, and that our hearts would burn with passion as we finally come to an understanding of these things of God, and that Jesus might be glorified in all that we think, say, and do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, well, guys, walking through Daniel, we're reading every verse. It's kind of what we're doing. And, and this is week 11, and so we're going to read all of chapter 11. It's a long chapter. We might, we might edge over into 12 just a hair, uh, depending on where things end, just so it makes sense. Uh, but please join me in the reading of God's Word. I am in Daniel chapter 11, starting in verse 1. It says, In the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to strengthen and protect him, uh, Now I will tell you the truth. Now, again, this is, um, if you go back a little bit, it says, No one has the courage to support me against those princes except Michael, your prince. In the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to strengthen and protect him. He says, Now I'm going to tell you the truth. So so we we need to understand from the very get-go, this is not Daniel speaking. All right, so I just want you to know we're framing the conversation. This is Gabriel talking, okay, to Daniel. So that's, that's who's speaking, okay? So that'll help. Make a little sense of it. So he says, now I tell you the truth. Three more kings are going to rise in Persia. You could almost add Daniel there. He's speaking to Daniel. Three more kings are going to rise in Persia. And the fourth will be far richer than all the others. The power that he gains through his riches, he will stir up everyone in the kingdom of Greece. Okay? Then a warrior king will arise, this is out of Greece, he will rule a vast realm and do whatever he wants, but as soon as he is established, 
His kingdom's going to be broken up and divided to the four winds of heaven. Now, we have heard this throughout the book of Daniel. We know Alexander the Great is this guy. Greece takes over the whole world. Alexander dies early, and his kingdom is split up between four of his generals. So that's kind of where we are, all right? It's where we are. It says, uh, but it's not going to go to his descendants. Uh, it will not be the same kingdom that he ruled because his kingdom will be uprooted and it's going to go to others beside them. Uh, Both of his sons were killed, by the way, and that's why the kingdom was split into four. Uh, It says, the king of the south will grow powerful, but one of his commanders will grow more powerful and will rule a kingdom greater than his. After some years, they're going to form an alliance and the daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to seal the agreement. She will not retain power and his strength will not endure. She will be given up together with her entourage, her father and the one who supported her during those times. In the place of the king of the south, one from her family will rise up, come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north. He will take action against them in triumph. He will take even their gods captive to Egypt with their metal images and their precious articles of silver and gold. For some years he will stay away from the king of the north who will enter the kingdom of the king of the south and then return to his own land. His sons will mobilize for war and assemble a large number of armed forces. They will advance sweeping through like a flood and will again wage wars as far as his fortress. Infuriated, the king of the south will march out to fight the king of the north who will raise a large army, but they will be handed over to his enemy. When the army is carried off, he'll be, become arrogant. He'll cause tens of thousands to fall, but he will not triumph. The king of the north will again raise a multitude larger than the first. After some years, he will advance with a great army and many supplies. In those times, many will raise up against the king of the south. Violent ones among your own people, Daniel, will assert themselves to fulfill a vision, but they will fail. Then the king of the north will come up and build up a siege ramp, and he'll capture a well-fortified city. The forces of the south will not stand. Even their select troops will not be able to resist. The king of the north who comes against them will do whatever he wants, and no one can oppose him. He will establish himself in the beautiful land, that's Palestine, with total destruction in his hand. He will resolve to come with the force of his whole kingdom and will reach an agreement with him. He will give him a daughter in marriage to destroy it, but she will not stand with him or support him. By the way, that's Cleopatra if you like history. That's Cleopatra goes to anyway, and then she, she doesn't listen to her dad. It says, uh, then he will turn his attention to the coast islands and capture many, but a commander will put an end to his taunting. Instead, he will turn his taunts against him. He will turn his attention back to the fortress of his own land, but he will stumble, fall, and be no more. In his place, one will arise who will send out a tax collector for the glory of the kingdom, but within a few days, he will be broken, though not in anger or in battle. In his place, here we are in verse 21, in his place a despised person will arise. I want you to be thinking about the little horn from chapter 8. Okay, Uh, Antiochus, Epiphanes, and all that that endured, all that the Jews would endure under him. And so it says, in his place a despised person will arise. Royal honors will not be given to him, but he will come during a time of peace and seize the kingdom by intrigue. A flood of forces will be swept away before him. They'll be broken as well as the covenant prince. 
After an alliance is made with him, he will act deceitfully. He will rise to power with a small nation. During a time of peace, he will come into the richest parts of the provinces and do what his fathers and predecessors never did. He will lavish plunder, loot, and wealth on his followers, and he will make plans against fortified cities, but only for a time. With a large army, he will stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south. The king of the south will prepare for battle with an extremely large And powerful army, but he will not succeed because plots will be made against him. Those who eat his provisions will destroy him. His army will be swept away and many will fall slain. The two kings whose hearts are bent on evil will speak lies at the same table, but to no avail. For still uh, the end will come at the appointed time. The king of the north will return to his land with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. He'll take action and then return to his own land. At the appointed time, he will come again to the south, but this time will not be like the first. Ships of Ketem will come against him, and being intimidated, he'll withdraw. And then he'll rage against the holy covenant and take action. On his return, he's going to favor those who abandon the Holy Covenant. His forces will rise up and desecrate the temple fortress. Then they will abolish the regular sacrifice and set up the abomination of desolation with flattery. He's going to corrupt those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But the people who know their God will be strong and take action. Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to many, yet they will fall by the sword and flame and be captured and plundered. For a time. When they fall, they will be helped by some, but many others will join them insincerely. Some of those who have insight will fall so that they may be refined, purified, and cleansed until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. It says, Then the king will do whatever he wants. He'll exalt and magnify himself above every god. And he will say outrageous things against the God of gods. Now we've switched from Antiochus Epiphanes to talking about the ultimate end times. We're talking about that one that will come at the end that we call the Antichrist. Okay? He will say outrageous things against the God of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed. Because what has been decreed will be accomplished. He will not show regard for the gods or his fathers, the God desired by women or... uh, the God desired by women or by any other God, because he will magnify himself above all. Instead, he will honor a God, a fortress, and a God his fathers did not know with gold, silver, precious stones, and riches. He will deal with the strongest fortress with the help of a foreign God. He will greatly honor those who acknowledge him, making them rulers over many and distributing land as a reward. At the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle. But the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, horsemen, and many ships. He will invade countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land, and many will fall. But these will escape from his power, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of the Ammonites. He will extend his power against the countries, and not even the land of Egypt will escape. He will get control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the riches of Egypt. The Libyans, the Cushites will also be in submission. But reports from the east and the north will terrify him. And he will go out with great fury to annihilate and completely destroy many. He will pitch his royal tents between the sea and the beautiful holy mountain. But he will uh, meet his end with no one to help him. 
May God bless the reading of his word. Whew, what a chapter, right? Man, oh man, anybody lost in all that? Anybody read that and say, whoa, hold up, that's a lot of stuff going on. Well, here's the deal, guys. Like I've said throughout the study, what we can do is we can spend our time together in the book of Daniel guessing about what we think these things mean. Okay, because that's that's what it is. I mean, I mean, kind of, kind of. We could we could go through. Well, this this may look like this, or this may be how the future. This may be how we we could do that, or we could talk about what we know this text means. And and I think we're gonna we're gonna start there. And so, four things that we know this text teaches us about God, uh, about His people, and about His promise. And here's the first one. The first thing this text teaches us, guys, is that God is in control. Right? That God is in control. Now, there is a lot going on in the first 35 verses of this chapter. I mean, a lot. And what Gabriel is doing for Daniel is he's laying out a detailed historical prophecy about the political powers that have an effect upon the people of God. See, because Daniel's been praying. He's been praying about his people. You remember that his people have returned to the Holy Land. And so he's praying. He's been praying, God, what's happening to the people? At this point, Daniel may have already found out that construction has stopped on the temple, on the city. It's ended. And he's praying, God, what is going on? Because remember, Daniel earlier was reading from Jeremiah. And he read at 70 years of captivity, God. And he'd already prayed once. God, 70 years. You said 70 years. We're going home. The kingdom's going to come. And God sends Gabriel. And Gabriel says, Daniel, you've misunderstood the plans of God. We do that a lot, right? And so misunderstood the plans of God. He says, it's not 70 years, brother. It's 70 times seven. We're going to start the clock now. And so ultimately, when, when now, now initially uh, Cyrus says, hey, go home. They go home, but, but it doesn't happen until Xerxes that the temple really starts to be restored and complete. And so we kind of do that timeline. If we do our 70 times seven from there, that gets us uh, up to uh, the ministry, the life and death ministry of Jesus Christ. And, uh, and that's kind of where we got to. And then we said, we're in this holding period. So listen, so, so Gabriel says, hey, Daniel, you're praying again. You're praying about your people. You're praying about what's to come. And so I, I want to I help you out. I'm going to lay out for you everything that is going to come politically in this region and how it's going to affect your people. And so he starts and he says, hey, so here's the deal. Um, three more Persian kings are going to raise up and they're just going to be so-so. Just kind of so-so regular dudes. But then the fourth one, he's going to be the man, Daniel. So the fourth guy that's going to come, he's going to be richer than any other king in Persia. And he is going to stir up the next nation. He's going to stir up the next ruler. He's going to start to mess with Greece, and he's going to get his butt kicked. That's what, that's what Gabriel's laying out. Like, God's laying this out. And so, uh, so here's what that looks like uh, in history. So he has, uh, the, he, he speaks, he says, uh, the vision's in, in the first year, right? In the first year. And so I'm going to go back to 11, uh, and this is Gabriel speaking. He says, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to strengthen and protect him. So, so uh, Gabriel's speaking, right? And so then he says, there's going to be three more kings. Here they are. Uh, so, so Darius uh, was, was ruling there at 539. The three kings after him were Cambyses, uh, Smyrtus, and Darius uh, Hestapes. And, uh, and, and he ends in 486. And then in 486, a fourth king raises up over Persia. And that guy's name is Xerxes. And Xerxes is the most powerful king that they have. And, and, and Xerxes, wealth like you couldn't believe, army like you couldn't believe. And he decides, you know what? I'm going to go poke the bear. 
I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go mess with, you know what, we're going to take them down. And so he starts stirring up all kinds of trouble with, with Greece and he's going to be defeated. Okay. Now what we have next, uh, before, because next he shifts and he starts talking about Alexander. There's about a 150 year gap there and there's some stuff going on in Greece and rulers coming up. But ultimately in 150 years then, and, and hear me, Xerxes is already defeated. He cannot invade Greece. But what happens is Greece realizes, hey, they're going to keep coming after us. We got to become a world power. And so Alexander, when he comes to power, he's like, we're, we're doing it. We're taking them. And, and man, swift as you could imagine. Swift as you can imagine. Remember, this is the, the, uh, it was a jaguar with the four heads and the four wings and just flying over all the earth. Swiftly, he demolishes everyone in insight and, and ultimately Greece conquers the world in, in a matter of like 10, 11 years. I mean, it just happened so fast. And then he dies. And then he dies, right? And so then after he dies, the kingdom's broken up into four parts. And it's weird here because what Gabriel explains is not all four parts. He says, I want to talk to you about, about two of those parts, okay? I'm going to talk to you about two of those parts. And, and, and so those two parts um, are, are, are two of the kingdoms, right? Two of these kingdoms. And, uh, and, and the reason he talks about these two parts is because one of these kingdoms is to the south, of Palestine, that's where Jerusalem is, and the other one is to the north. And the kings of the south and the kings of the north are going to fight one another, and they're going to constantly enter into Palestine, and it's going to affect the people of God. So God's going, hey, I want to let you know, Daniel, what's going to happen politically and how it's going to affect my people. Okay, These two out of these four are going to constantly be in war, and it's always going to jack with Jerusalem. Okay? That's what's going to happen. And so then the rest of what we have there, uh, really, from verse 5 to 20, um, describes all of this. Uh, and then from verse 21 through 35, I've got another table for you. Think. So I know that's small. So um, if, if you want it, email me. I'll shoot it to you this week. Uh, but, but here's the deal. So, so we've got uh, over the south, that's called the Ptolemaic Kingdom. And, and that's everybody that reigns there. It's Ptolemy, it starts with, with a general. Uh, over in the north, it starts with Seleucid, another general, uh, Seleucus. And, and ultimately, okay, the north ends up with Antiochus Epiphanes, and that's who is spoken of in verse 21 all the way through verse 35. And we've talked about that guy. That's a guy from Daniel chapter 8. He was the, the, um, the worst persecutor of God's people during this period of time ever. And killed thousands at a time. At one point, I think I read he killed 80,000 men, women, and children. He took people out of their homes that said that they believed in God and immediately put them to death. If he found any remnant of the scroll uh, of, 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 uh, or the Pentateuch in anybody's house, he immediately put them to death. Um, he went into the temple and uh, there on the altar, of course, um, to mock God, he slayed a pig. Um, and, uh, and then he brought prostitutes into the temple. And, and he made that an act of worship. And he just defiled the temple. He laughed at people that believed in God. And he ultimately put them to death. And it was the worst persecution that God's people had ever faced. And all of that, listen to me, all of that, Gabriel says, Daniel, this is what's coming. This is what's coming. I'm going to tell you. Now, anybody else, does this, like, that's crazy, Right? I mean, the detail to which Gabriel gives the information to Daniel astounds me, and it reminds me of this truth that we've seen all throughout the book of Daniel, and that is that God is sovereign. 
God is in control. And I, I don't know about you, but maybe you're here this morning and you've kind of felt like your life has spun out of control. And so I hope this is a great reminder to you is that even when life is crazy, even when you're trying to get your bearings, just know that God is in control. He is still on his throne, folks, okay? So we start there that God is in control. Second thing I want you to know, though, is not only is God in control, but he has a plan, right? But he has a plan. That's the second thing we learned from the text. Now, listen, these are two different things, believe it or not, right? So uh, I, as, as uh, the head of my house, uh, I got some control in my house, uh, I have four children, and I can say to those children, hey, get up and get your shoes on. And they're going to fight me and say, I don't want to. I say, I don't care. Get your shoes on. Boy, you best, you best come if you're coming, right? You get your shoes on, go get in the car. And, uh, and my kids, after griping and complaining, ultimately will go get in the car. It may be because I threaten them that they will never have a cellular device ever again, but whatever it takes, right? Like, I, like I ha- I'm in control, okay? So you guys understand we all have kind of our own level of control. That's one thing. It's one thing to be in control. It's another thing to have a plan because I am not a planner. I'm a visionary. And so I'd be like, well, we, Dad, why are we getting in the car? Well, we're getting in the car because we're going to go have some fun. Well, what kind of fun are we going to go have? I don't know. We'll figure it out along the way. And then the chaos breaks in the car, right? Would be no fun. That's why I married my wife. Because she is the planner. And I can say to my wife, I'd like us to go out and have fun. She'd be like, all right, we could do this, 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 or this. What do you like to do? Let's do that. We'll eat there. We got the whole night planned. It's awesome, right? And so, uh, listen, those are two different things, both very, very important. And what we learn when we begin to study the Word of God, when we study Daniel chapter 11, is not just that God is sovereign and that he's in, in control, but also that, that he has a plan that he is working towards constantly. And so I want you to see this. Even in the evil reign of Antiochus Epiphanes, the guy that's going to persecute God's people the worst, I, I want you to look at what God, uh, what God says through Gabriel to Daniel on a regular basis. And we'll start here. I think it's verse uh, 724. Yeah, that's what I meant to say. It's verse 24, right? Um, verse 24 and then 27. So verse 24 says, uh, says this, during a time of peace, he's going to come to the richest parts of the province. He's going to do what his fathers and predecessors never did. He's going to lavish plunder, loot, uh, uh, and, and, and wealth on his followers, and he will make plans against the fortified cities. But look at that last little phrase. What? But only for a time. Ooh. Now look at uh, verse 27. The two kings whose hearts are bent on evil are going to speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for still the end will come when? At the appointed time. Ooh. It's like there's a schedule we're unaware of. Okay? Verse, verse 35. Some of those who have insight will fall so that they may be refined, purified, and cleansed until the time of the end, for it will still what? Come at the appointed time. And guys, this is huge. I know that life doesn't always seem to make sense. We'll talk about that in a second. I know that life doesn't always seem to make sense. But the Bible declares that God is moving all of human history toward a culmination, toward an event that will happen at Christ's return. God for eternity has had a plan. I hope that brings you comfort, that God's not up in heaven guessing, right? (laughs) Let's try this out and see if it works. God is in control, and he has a plan, 
And he's moving all of human history towards the culmination of his plan. That's what's going on as we speak right now. Everything happens at God's appointed time. That is what we find over and over in the book of Daniel. And, and guys, this isn't just in the book of Daniel. We find this throughout the Bible. Ecclesiastes 3.1 says there's an occasion for everything, a time for every activity under heaven, right? Daniel, we, we, we read just a couple chapters ago, had been meditating on Jeremiah 29.11. And when he meditated on Jeremiah 29.11, what he found out is that God had a plan for his people, right? Jeremiah 29.11, for I know the plans I have for you. He's talking about Israel. God's, God's saying, hey, I have a plan for my people, for my children. Israel. He said, this is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you future and a hope. And Daniel's going, wait a second. So you have a plan that's not for disaster, but it involves all this persecution we have to face. And God says, yep, yep, that's it. I have a plan, Daniel. You got to tell my people, I've got a plan. I'm working. And some of us would say, well, okay, so I get it. God has a plan for Israel but does he have a plan for me? And that's when we read these words in Ephesians. Listen to what Paul writes. He says, in him, we have also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to what? The plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. If you are here today and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then you are an adopted son, okay? That includes the women, You're adopted as sons, so you get full inheritance, okay? And according to the Bible, that has always been part of the plan of God. Isn't that good? Isn't that good? God is in control, and he has a plan, and that plan includes me. That plan includes you. That's big stuff. That's not not small stick on the shelf. Why are we reading Daniel chapter 11? This is boring kind of stuff. That's that's really important, uh, earth-shaking kind of truth there. We are part of that plan too. I know like the world seems like it's spinning out of control. I know life doesn't always seem to make sense. But the Bible declares God is in control. And God has a plan. He has a purpose in all that he does. Okay? Third part. You guys may not like this point. Ready? Suffering is part of that plan. (laughs) All right? Suffering is part of the plan of God. Just need to, you need to hear it, need to hear it. So Gabriel in verse 21 through 35 reveals to Daniel that all of the people of God are going to endure a massive suffering at the hands of Antiochus Epiphanes. And we talked about this a few weeks ago in chapter 8 and, and the countless number of Jews that were killed, how he desecrated the temple. And I just want you, um, I want you to listen to this. I think I've got it in verse 33. Uh, I'll read it to you in verse 33 through 35. Uh, Daniel 11, verse 33 through 35. It says, those who have insight among the people are going to give understanding to many, yet they will fall by the sword and flame and be captured and plundered for a time. We'll just stop there. Those, those who have insight among the people, they're going to give understanding to many as they fall by the sword and flame and they're captured and they're plundered, right? What does that, that mean? It means they give understanding to the people that this is how the kingdom comes. The, the kingdom comes by, by us enduring hardship. 
The kingdom is going to come through our, our suffering. The kingdom is going to come, it says right there, it's going to come as we fall to the sword and to flame and we're captured and we're plundered for a season. That's how the kingdom's going to come. Was that the insight you want? May not be, but it's the insight you need. Let me ask you this. If God didn't tell you that life was going to be hard and you accepted Jesus as ruler over your life with the banner statement that it will always be good and easy and fun and wonderful, what will happen to your faith in that Jesus when life is shaken? And friends, I'm telling you, there's a world full of people that are in that right now. Because the gospel that they heard preached to them was not a gospel of suffering. And what I would submit to you is that if you study the Bible, there is no gospel without suffering. There's no God. It's not. Like, like, and, and hear me, this isn't just a, an Old Testament concept. You guys think, well, yeah, that's, that's the Old Testament, right? I mean, the Old Testament, yeah, God's people back then had to suffer. I'm the Ephesians 1 person. I, I've been grafted. I've been adopted into the family of God. I've got all the blessings of Jesus. I don't have any problems that my faith can't overcome. I tell you, I'm an overcomer. I'm a, I mean, right? And, and we, we've had that preaching. The, the New Testament, that doesn't have any of that. I mean, that's the Old Testament, that suffering hardship business. And Jesus, I've got every blessing of God. Yes, you have every blessing of God. And as a child of God, you'll face the discipline of God. It's part of life. So let's, let's walk through what the New Testament says about suffering. Paul writes this in Romans 5, uh, 3 and 4. He says, not on, only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that Suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope. I've got plans for you. Plans for what? Hope and a future. And you can't get hope. You can't be like me. You can't be my child. The world can't look at you and you be its light unless you suffer for my sake. Ooh. Right? Philippians 1.29. He says, for it has been granted to you. That's <laughs> like, as like a, a gift. <laughs> Merry Christmas. <laughs> what, what is it? What is it? I'm so excited. Open the box. Ready? It's been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him. Thank you, Jesus. But also to suffer for him. Oh. <laughs> Christmas sucks. Excited. Peter writes it this way, 1 Peter 5.10. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. God wants to strengthen you he wants to care for you. Anybody been sick yet? Anybody been sick yet? No? Franklin had a little bit. No? God bless you. Y'all stay that way, okay? 
Love you. We got a live stream if you're not feeling well. You've run in fever. You just got the mucus. I love you. God bless you. Stay in bed. Watch us. You can give online. You can worship in bed. It'd be great. All right? So we're coming up on flu season. I'm just telling you. I love you enough to tell you to stay home. Uh, you know, when we're sick, sometimes that's when we're the most comforted. Amen? Amen? Sometimes that's when the people in our life that we know that love, like we know they love us, but suddenly like they have to kick in like a whole nother level. And, and when somebody is like wiping the puke off your face, you know what I'm saying? When they're, they're helping you get out of the stuff, you just all over, like, like all of a sudden you realize I am deeply cared for. Listen. You want to experience the depths of the love of God. You'll have to suffer and endure the hardship of the world. And there in that moment, God will meet you. And he will wait upon you and strengthen you in ways that will make you feel so loved. So loved. The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. Now, for some of you, you say, I don't, I don't know that I like this. <laughs> I don't. I don't know that I like this. Wait, wait a second. So, so God is in control, and he has a plan, and his plan for me is suffering, and that just doesn't seem very fair. Maybe your gospel is a little too self-centered. Maybe you missed something. You see, for God to save you and make you his child, that little bit of suffering that you had to face is nothing in comparison to what he has done for you. You see, here's what the Bible said God endured for your sake, Isaiah 53. Jesus was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we did not value him. So lest you hear the words of God say, my children, you have to suffer and you think it is unfair. (laughs) Know that God himself is the example of what suffering is and what it's for. Okay? God is in control. Not only is he in control, but he has a plan. That plan involves suffering. But here's the good news. Last point. Ready? God's plan ends in victory for his children. Amen? Ends in victory for his children. I want to read verse 45 to you. Speaking about this Antichrist, right? Speaking about this Antichrist, it says, He will pitch his royal tents between the sea and the beautiful holy mountain. He will meet his end with no one to help him. This is the great opposer. This is the great persecutor of the people of God. And the text says, He will be destroyed. Jesus, who suffered and died in our place, will return in power and glory, and He will defeat the Antichrist. That is the great truth of God's Word. Now listen, we can dive into the details of that. Many people have tried to take Daniel 11 
and lay it over the book of Revelation and talk about all the events and where they're going to take place and which gate Jesus is coming out of and how Satan's going to be defeated and what the chariots are. I mean, like, like, well, we could go there, but I'm going to tell you, as we go there, we're going to be making our best guesses. Or I could tell you what we know. Here's what we know. Victory is coming for the children of God. I like to describe that victory in four ultimate words. All start with R. Okay. We've, we've experienced some of these in part. Okay. But just as we know in part, one day we would fully know these things. Ready? Here's the four R words that victory in Christ means. Number one, it means rescue. Rescue. Jesus is going to come and rescue his people. It's coming. Okay? We've already, we've put our faith and trust in Christ. We've been rescued from the penalty of sin. We've been rescued from the penalty of sin, which is death. We now have life in Christ. Okay? But one day, we're going to be rescued from the very presence of sin. There'll be no more sin. We're going to be rescued. Okay? Second R... First one is rescue. Second is redemption. Okay? Redemption will be completely redeemed. All of the glory that that means. Now, I don't know about you, but there are some days in this earth suit that I don't feel very redeemed. I'm the only sinner here this morning. I didn't get a single amen. We in church, people, Jesus is watching. Jesus is watching. I don't know about you, man. There are just some days that I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't feel very redeemed. But man, there's a day coming. Whoo! Ain't going to be able to deny it. Resurrection body. It's going to be good. Which leads me to my third one. That's the third R of our victory is resurrection. Resurrection. We work really hard uh, in our world, especially in America, trying not to die. You know what I'm saying? Man, we try not to die so hard that we lose all our money on health care. I just don't want to die. Here, take $20,000 out of my bank account this year. No, I don't care. We need to bring back some plagues. You know what I'm saying? I mean, Jesus, come. Joking, joking. Man, we work so hard not to die. I mean, think, think about it. I mean, half of our Wednesday night prayer time is trying to pray people out of heaven. Bring them back to us, Lord. We need them a little longer. We want them to stay down here and suffer with us. Isn't that how we pray? Please don't let them die. Listen, I know the Lord. So when you get me on that prayer list, just send me home. Lord, let him him be in your presence. God bless him. Amen. Okay. It'll be all right. Resurrection, man, it's coming. And death will have no sting. There'll be no fear. It'll be gone. No power. Man, what kind of dance are we going to dance on that day? In our resurrection bodies, in the presence of our Lord, as Satan has been completely defeated, and we walk in complete newness of life. Amen? Whew. It's going to be good. Some of you Baptists don't know how to dance, but on that day, you will. On that day, you will. 
Last R, victory means that we reign. Means it will reign with him. Jesus is coming back to establish a kingdom that we get to reign with him. God's plan all the way back from Genesis as man was given dominion will be restored completely. And it'll be an amazing, beautiful thing. Kind of a big deal. So what do we do when we realize those lessons out of Daniel 11? Okay, give you a couple things. I'll let you go. Here's your homework this week. Number one, Uh, The challenge of Daniel 11 is for us to give up control. For us to give up control. Okay? God is in control. Here's a newsflash. Ready? You are not. All right? The thought of control is a fallacy, my friends. But it is a fallacy that will send you to hell. It is. I mean, 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 listen. People all over the place, are going to go to hell because of a lie that they have believed that they are in control of their lives, right? And so they are up sitting on a throne that they didn't build, that they couldn't have built, that doesn't belong to them, and they're saying, I'm calling the shots, I'm in control, I've got this, I've got that, and the Lord could take it all away in a moment. Control is a fallacy. It is a lie, and I'm telling you, it is not a lie worth eternity. And so the gospel says, listen, there can only be one person in control. And either you live a lie, believing it's you, and one day you will find out in horror that you were wrong. Or you submit to the truth of the Bible that there is only one God, that he is the only way to heaven and that he is the one that is in control of not just tomorrow, but he is in control of you today. And the Bible says that is how we are saved, by putting our faith in that God and saying, God, I am done with the lie, with the fallacy of control. You own me. Live in me. Control me. I am yours. And the Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay? Some of you are weary and you are tired. And you are weary and tired because you are trying to play the role of God. And it is exhausting. Recognize him as God. Okay? Get off of his throne. Elevate him to his true honor place in your life. Okay? You will be saved. Second thing uh, text calls us to do is to trust. To trust in the plan of God. The plan of God is, is good. It's uh, to prosper me, not to harm me. Give me a future. You say, how is it not to harm me when I'm going to face persecution because suffering makes you better? It just does. Let me ask you this. Do you want to be like God? Do you want to look like Jesus? Do you want the world to see Jesus in you? You've got like two amens. Would you like the world to see Jesus in you? Okay. How do you get the character of Christ? You suffer like Christ. Suffering produces character. And character will produce hope. It's how it works. It's how it works. And so we have to choose daily, as Christ did, to die to ourselves. That's suffering right there every day. Every day, I, choose, I could do this. No, I'm not going to do that. Right? On top of that, the world's going to throw in some persecution. That's some suffering you didn't see coming. 
that too will make you more like Christ because you will have to lean into him instead of leaning into yourself, all right? So we have to trust the plans of God. When life throws you a curveball, just assume God's trying to teach you how to hit a curve. He's not trying to strike you out. He's just trying to make you a better batter. You follow me? Okay? All right. Last one. We must learn to praise him through the pain. Right? Romans 5. Uh, I'll throw it up on the screen again here in a second. And she's, I'm going to make her go all the way back and find it. But Meredith's got this. She's got it on lockdown. So we say, praise him through the pain. Here's what Romans 5 said again. If we can, we can get it. She's got it, right? You, you scrolling up? Is it coming? There we go. Listen. Not only so, but we also what? We glory in our suffering. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. What does that mean? To glory in your suffering. It doesn't mean that you're boasting in the fact that you're suffering. To glory in your suffering means that you're glorifying God in your suffering. Okay? means that you're praising God in the midst of your own pain. That you're understanding that he is the God that gives and takes away. And he is worthy of our praise. And so some of you this morning, uh, maybe, maybe you're going through some deep personal hurt. And I just want to tell you, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I know what it's like. It, it stinks, man. But it can make you bitter. Or it can make you better. If you will praise God in the midst of your hurt, oh man, you will see some sweetness come. In the midst of your hurt and sickness, He Himself, not, not an angel, not, not somebody else, He Himself will give you strength. Ha! When your father comes to your bedside in your hurt and you've been crying out, Daddy, you're good. Daddy, you're good. Daddy, you are good. And he comes to your bedside and says, I think it's time to get up and walk again. It is awesome. It is awesome. Praise him through your pain. Do you guys pray with me? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, which is good and endures forever. God, I want to pray for my brothers and sisters that have been experiencing the trials of life. We got some trials going on right now. Some of them are financial. Some of them are marital. Some of them involve the loss of people that we have dearly loved. Some of them involve the world that we live in and feeling like some of our freedoms are being pressed in upon. And all that, God... Uh, says, uh, your word declares, all of that falls within these truths that you are in control, that you have a plan, and that you have predicted this is part of that plan we must go through. And none of that changes the fact that you're good. And so God, this morning, help us respond. Help us just choose to worship you in the midst of the hurt and the pain and the suffering. Let us give you glory. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do with your heads bowed, with your eyes closed, that thing that has been hurting your heart the most, right where it is. It's going to be hard, but right where it is, could you take one moment and in prayer, say, God, thank you for this.
Thank him for it right now. It's, it's, it's hard. It hurts. But God, thank you that I am going through this because I want to be more like you. God, thank you for the loneliness because Jesus, I know that you felt alone and abandoned. God, thank you for this battle with health. For I know all that you physically endured for my sake. God, thank you for this friend that has betrayed me. Because I know that you were betrayed. I know that you know how I feel. Just pause, just give him praise. Give him glory in that suffering right now. And once you've done it, just raise a hand. Just a hand to say amen. Just say amen. Yeah. God, be glorified in us. You are our king. Thank you for loving us the way that you do. Thank you for having a plan for our lives. Thank you for ministering to us in the midst of our suffering that we might be more like you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.